Hello and welcome back to the Gifted Podcast Olympic Special Series. If you're new here, in this special series, we are going to be joined by Olympians of past and present who will be sharing their experience of competing at the Olympics as we learn what it takes to live your life without fear and inhibitions and make your zindagi unlimited. And in that very spirit, this special series is brought to you by Edelweiss Tokyo Life Insurance, which perfectly embodies this very notion of a zindagi unlimited. Well, India started the Olympics with a bang by winning a silver medal on day one. And they closed the Olympics with a bigger bang by winning a gold medal courtesy Neerat Chopra. This was India's first gold medal in athletics in over a hundred years, with the last one coming in the 1900 Paris Olympics. This also makes Neerat Chopra only the second individual gold medal winner for India after Abhinav Bindra in Beijing 2008. It was a proud moment for the entire nation to hear the national anthem being played as Neeraj stood atop that podium. We'll certainly try to have Neeraj join us on the podcast to share his experience at the Olympics and becoming an Olympic champion. But until we can manage that, let's listen to another champion who knows the similar feeling of winning a gold medal at the Olympics. We spoke with Lindsay Shu, an Olympic champion in rowing. She talks about her experience of winning the gold medal, how the medal was way heavier than she expected it to be, and how she continued to find the motivation to excel at her sport in spite of a high of winning the gold medal at the Olympics. So let's jump straight in. Welcome, Lindsay, to the Gifted Podcast today. We're really, really excited to have you today and learn more about your journey to becoming the, the Olympic gold medalist and having a successful career as you do. So let's start right at the beginning. And I'm really keen to know what are the foundations that you believe contributed to you becoming a, a very successful athlete? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because there were lots of things, good and bad, you know, when you're a kid growing up in the country, bumping around, you know, with your older brother and predominantly male friends, simply because there weren't that many girls my age that lived nearby, you know, where I lived in the country. So I spent a lot of time growing, you know, with the boys in the yard and playing get backyard games and things like that. And so being a little bit tall for my age too helped me kind of keep up with them as we kind of invented games as we went along. And it was really a badge of honor to be able to keep up with them. You know, and I remember a couple of our friends that were particularly strong and fast while I was growing up, I thought, man, they are so fast. Look how athletic they are, you know, and by virtue of that, that kind of pulls you along with them. And, you know, again, because of my size played a lot of different sports, didn't enter those sports because of some natural innate gift. It was more out of necessity, which you know, I talk a little bit about in the book is that I nearly drowned in a lake when I was two. So, you know, survival is swimming. So that was kind of where it all started. And after that, you know, I started, I rode horses, I played, you know, basketball, baseball, field hockey, soccer, you know, volleyball. It's just a whole slew of sports. And so, you know, having those influences as a kid, you know, they gave, you know, they helped free up time for my parents, but they also gave me that outlet of exercise, learning how to compromise and work with and fight, you know, with other people, you know, I fought with my older brother a lot. So all of those small things really were influences growing up that of course, at the time I had no idea what was going on, but reflecting on that, realized how important the people around me really, really were. And 
I don't know if it was an inborn thing or if it was because of all the teams I was on when I was young, but my joy in being around other people and being a part of something, you know, and that's what sports were the outlet for is that I got to work with other people. I got to spend time with other people. And that I think is one of the skills, not, I think that is definitely a skill that to this day, I really helped me excel all the way through the elite level. Rowing is a team sport. So if you are a really great teammate and can communicate and learn through that whole process, you're going to go much farther with it. Yeah. At this time, so like you mentioned, two and a half years of being in college and at 20 years of age is when you found rowing or should we say rowing found you. Uh, Talk me through this life-changing moment of rowing finding you because I've read about this a little on how you almost ran out of the training the very first day. So I'd want to know more here. Yeah, the night before, night before I bumped into the coach, the head coach of the University of Virginia rowing team, I'd actually woken up in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep because I had all these thoughts in my head of what I wished I had done differently in my, but that I thought it was too late that, well, I didn't make the decision before now and shoot, I was only 20 years old at the time. So clearly it was not too late, but for picking up a new sport, it does seem kind of late, let alone picking up that sport and then going to the Olympics with it. That's very rare. So when I woke up in the middle of the night and I wished to myself, gosh, I wish I had done things differently. You know, I even said the world will never know. And that includes me, you know, I might've been something had I done this sooner. Well, lo and behold, the very next day I bumped into the college rowing coach and he suggested, Hey, try rowing. And at the time it was the right moment where I was like, wow, this is a sign. This is a serendipitous moment. I'll do that because this gaining weight, dropping grades, not hanging out with my friends is not the best version of me. So let's do that. Anything is better than what I was doing. So then that was a decision. 17 year old insecure me coming out of high school would have never said yes. So I said yes at that moment. But by the time that the first day of actual rowing practice happened, I showed up at the gym. I worked my way back in through this meandering maze of hallways and doors. And I stop right before I walk into the gym and finally make that decision of, okay, I'm officially at practice because I could see through this vertical glass in the door, all the people that were there. And when I saw them, it was funny, some friends of mine and I were just talking about this yesterday. When I saw them, I thought, my gosh, these women are tall. They're strong. They all know each other. What am I thinking? I'm out of my league. And so I turned around and tried to run back to the safety of my car. And on my way out, two girls on the team said, oh, you know, you're here for practice. Practice is this way. And they kind of corralled me and took me with them. So I was like caught red-handed trying to escape on my first day. (laughs) Here, you know, I had made that decision to say, sure, I'll show up. And then I thought, oh my God, why? (laughs) So I'm I'm thankful that they might've been running a little late for practice. That was another serendipitous moment. Thank goodness they were there because who knows where I might be today had they not helped me make my final decision to show up yeah and uh, a life-changing moment that almost didn't happen so (laughs) and i had read that and this is also brought up in our previous conversation where you mentioned that the aimless path of of the first couple of years in college and you wanting to break through that and 
that's why you looked at rowing as an opportunity to transform yourself what about rowing as a sport made you think that this probably could be it the the sport that could allow you to transform yourself and possibly a pathway to greatness you know rowing was it was different it was complete i knew nothing about it my parents knew nothing about it there weren't teams for you know high school athletes at the time there are a couple now but i mean it was not a thing where i grew up you know in fact i didn't even tell my family that i was going to join the team you know <laughs> i just said oh, i'm going to start doing this thing you know because it wasn't about them it was about me and i was just going to try this thing and the sport itself more than any i mean i played almost a dozen sports growing up and rowing was the sport out of all of those sports that allowed me to methodically gradually at my own pace get better yes you're comparing yourself against other people but because it's a non-contact sport it's not a points ball sport you know it is literally how much better can i get at can i push myself a little bit more today can i get a little bit stronger can i sleep a little bit better there were all of these very controllable elements that i could learn about little by little as long as i paid attention to those elements it's interesting because i've now thought i actually made a little note on my wall one day to do some research about this is it made me wonder if one of the keys to being really great at sports is a memory and the willingness to track things and i enjoyed writing i enjoyed tracking and keeping journals and logs and my memory combining those factors allowed me to truly see all of the minute details that really did matter and not just the erg score or the height or the speed running up the hill it was all of the small things that allowed me to excel right and like you mentioned you it also depends on the individual's ability to learn and retain the information especially in a team sport where you need to you know keep driving yourself and pulling your mm-hmm. own yeah yeah i mean and and you, so you learn there might be some element that the collective that the whole group is working on but you also need to remember what your individual things are even if the coaches aren't giving you that feedback every day it's like okay i was told to do this one thing with my thumb 3 weeks ago so i better do that even though the rest of the group is maybe working on these other things i need to do that and these and that's where i wonder if the memory isn't a piece of it you know just being able to, to identify that a that small thing is important and b to care to keep that small thing as part of your routine right and in fact this brings me to a very interesting topic that i often try and understand from athletes that are in team sports so i dread and you'd also mentioned that the first few training sessions were all about cleaning the board organizing your stuff talking to your teammates and getting to know them and then eventually rowing for only 20 minutes what mm-hmm. process of cultivating and nurturing an intangible but extremely important trait of teamwork within an individual especially in a sport like rowing starting with where we did like to to speak specifically to this example that you're using of our first day of practice even outside the sport it made sure and our coach setting up that situation i don't know if it just was kind of oh we needed to clean the boathouse and get organized maybe it was as simple as that maybe it was just like well you know this needs to happen today or you know he maybe very intentionally and i and i this is what i suppose in the book is that he did it very intentionally because 
we needed to take care of each other and our stuff. And we needed to understand that it wasn't going to happen really fast and that there were a lot of small elements that mattered. And so it taught us to pay attention to the, to those small things. It was like, Oh, if he thinks this is important, then it must be important. And so something as simple as sweeping the boathouse was an important piece of being a good teammate and being a good athlete, you know, that the coach, our coach was there with us cleaning and climbing and doing all of the things. It didn't, he didn't just say that it was important. He demonstrated that it was important, you know, and that was how my college coach was too. He was there with us doing a lot of the things. So it truly, they lived what they, they said, you know, and, you know, truth be told, you never know what it actually takes and what it will take you to get where you want to go. So when you're leveling up to the higher levels, you look for those tiny little incremental things that might make the difference. And as long as you have the time to do them and you fold them into your training, you know, you, you are kind of taking care of all the things that might matter in the long run. So over the whole picture, and this is where writing the book became a really fun exploration is that it, I went, okay, these are all of the things that happened, you know, or at least the highlights of the types of things that happened. And I can't help but think that they all mattered in what we did. If they didn't, then you could just cookie cut our training plan and perform it and win. And that's how it would work. Yeah. But I, I still, as an athlete and as a coach, firmly believe in the X factor that all things made equal among two different groups. There are unmeasurable things like innate connection and teamwork. And through that levity, even the practical jokes that we played on one another, you know, that matter, that help you jump off the page because they allow you to embrace the training more than you might otherwise. Right. And this teamwork is actually something that is so important. I started showing early in your career that within four years of you starting the sport, you won a bronze medal at the World Cup in 2005. And that opened the floodgates for gold medals. So gold medal in World Championships 2006 and 7, gold medals in World Cup 2007 and 8. We often hear that winning one gold medal is difficult enough, but doing it consistently for a period of three to four years is a true hallmark of an individual as well as a team. What would be the biggest factor behind this sustained period of success according Longevity, you know, and this is something that I love talking about. And this is why I am where I am today. And I love that you're asking this question because it's like, why did I write the book now? And why did it get informed the way that, why did it build out to the way that it did? That I firmly believe that there are so many things that we can do to take care of ourselves beyond. The, all of the recovery allows you to sustain. And when I say recovery, I don't just mean sleep. And I don't just mean the way you're eating and the way that you're thinking, but that there's the social element of the support. And that's where, you know, when you are able to truly enjoy what you're doing, because even on the bad days, when you're stepping in puddles and your knuckles are bleeding, you know, like <laughs> from the cold and cracked hands, when you can truly embrace that because it's allowing you to be better. It's not just about the external factor. It's about you as a human being developing and learning and I've found that continual growth and development and learning stays interesting over time because it's never the same. It's never, it never allows it to get old, yeah. you know, and, and I really do 
you know, during that time where I really was in, you know, leading up to the first Olympics that I was training for the group of athletes that I was so fortunate to be immersed with, there was an overarching positive sensibility. We all took care of ourselves individually, but we really did, you know, default to positive, especially when we were together and having that be the overarching kind of culture allowed it to be sustainable because it kept it fun. It kept building us up and it, you know, kept it light. That's a, that's a phrase that we use in rowing is to keep it light because the boat goes faster when you keep it light. So and keeping it light is like lighthearted, you know, so you keep it light in the boat and out and that helps you go fast. Right. And in fact, coming to the Olympics and having dominated the sport leading up to Beijing Olympics, I'm sure the target there also was the gold medal, but how do you train especially mentally for such an enigmatic sports competition like the Olympics? And how do you keep the complacency from creeping in considering that you have been dominating the sports for so long? In the grand scheme of, of the Olympics, you know, we actually hadn't dominated for that long. To the outsider, it might seem like a long time, but for us, there were other people that we raced against that had been winning the games for a decade, you know, more than a decade, you know, so multiple Olympic gold medals, repeat, you know, and so for us to step into it, we were the underdogs, you know, it didn't seem like it in the years leading up to it. It boded well for us. It showed us progress toward this, you know, getting better every day. Can we get a little better now? Okay. We did that. Cool. Can we get a little better now? You know, here's a, for instance, there was a team that was notorious for winning the games. And in 2006, when we set the world record, we'd beaten them by somewhere around 13 seconds, which is a lot in rowing. That's a lot. And then one year later, they had cut our 13 second margin to a second, somewhere right around a second. So if they stayed on that, if the, if the trajectory were linear, they would have eclipsed everyone at the games. And so that's their increase in speed in that period of time was like, oh, shoot, yes, obviously we need to keep going, right? We, we squeaked it out by the skin of our teeth the year before the games compared to the previous year. So we knew that because everyone was chasing that we didn't want them to pass us. So we didn't train staring at them. We trained toward things that no one had ever done before. So that allowed us to not focus on anything else except what we were doing. This has never been done before by anyone. We aren't staring at anyone else to make this happen. We are staring off into the distance and then looking back at what we can do every single day, which was practice. And when you make the chunks manageable like that, that's the psychological part too. You are physically making the chunks manageable. And so you're biting things off, which allow you to grow mentally too. Your confidence grows as a result of the preparation that you're putting in one manageable chunk at a time. You never, I love that you said enigmatic about the Olympics because you never understand what that means. <laughs> I don't know that we at human be as human beings are meant to understand things that are that big, you know, which makes it so special. Yeah. And all the more challenging, but yearning for the individual to train for such a competition. Yeah. I mean, and for me, reflecting, and again, again, people say, did you know what was going on at the time? Reflecting and writing the book has allowed me to go, 
it was about getting better every day. And that, and I've called the Olympics a byproduct of that a couple of times or once at least before where had we looked at it as like, oh, we want to beat someone else, you know, that would have limited us. It would have made us only as good as whatever that thing in the past had been. And so when it, when it, when you turn it internal and you can connect it so meaningfully, because at the end of the day, not that we're selfish, but we're kind of innately like survival, you know, ourselves is what we're at. Human instinct is, is that's our natural human instinct. And so when you can tie what you're doing to helping you grow, that allows you to, to whatever that outlet is that, like I mentioned before, that allows you to pour more into that. And, you know, if you think about it in order to be really wonderful and great for someone else, to be a part of something that a greater whole that is meant to be great, you have to first be good for yourself yeah. because you won't have the tools at your disposal to be that best version of you for someone else. It's, it's weird to phrase it without it sounding selfish, but by doing your, making yourself the best version of you possible, you are helping someone else do the same thing. You know, you're, you're giving them the most positive energy that you can. Yeah. Very counterintuitive, but so, so true. And going into the final race at the Olympics, how were you feeling? And could you talk me through your final race? Yeah. The, and this was, this is fun too, because I have these vivid memories and really getting through, getting to refine writing about this, honestly, during the height of the pandemic allowed me to sit at my desk for hours on end and focus and put myself and imagine myself in those moments that are so vividly held in my mind. And not only that, look back at the words that I wrote, you know, there are very specific lines in the book that I include as quotes. And those quotes are either quotes that I remember or quotes that I wrote down verbatim that we had. And that's why those are quite accurate, <laughs> the conversations that were actually had. But sitting at the start line, we all make assumptions about athletes, you know, the way, about anyone that performs at the highest level and everybody, we're human, we all have doubt. And you cannot prepare yourself for all the doubt. You can do your best to prepare yourself for as much of it as you possibly can, to be as confident as you possibly can be. But you never know how your body is naturally going to respond when you enter a situation, a challenge, whatever it is that you care about. And the more you care about it, the more likely it is that you're going to get nervous no matter how prepared you are. And sitting at the start line, we went through our routine and that is something, having a routine from the moment that you wake up, you know, to the moment that you're done with the race is having it down to the pinky nail, you know, is going to allow you to stay focused on just, okay, I'm managing this process. And that's going to help your mind stay off of the, you know, the nerves that might otherwise build. You fill it with things that you can do something about rather than rampant thoughts of what might happen. Well, I'm going to, you know, make sure that I'm brushing my teeth, sleeping well, stretching. My body is as prepared as it can be. My mind is as prepared as it can be. So that when you sit there and you do have that moment of, holy crap, this is the biggest race that I've ever, this is the biggest challenge I've ever faced in my entire life. This is going to hurt a lot. It's going to be really hard. I'm going to feel terrible in about five minutes. <laughs> Actually, not even in five minutes, in about 45 seconds, I'm going to feel terrible. But 
you sit there and then you have that moment of, and then you go, yeah, because I made the decision a million times because I've taken millions of strokes and I've woken up on thousands of days and gone to at least two or three times that many practices and said, yeah, this is what I want. And I've gone through all of these things, but right now I'm so rested and so prepared because of that. So then you can take a deep breath and then you just let it flow. Then you don't think about anything. There are literally no thoughts in your mind. <laughs> and like you mentioned, you are trying to follow a routine and keep your mind out of it so that there is less decision fatigue and the and it's something that's usually used in sports psychology, the monkey mind and wanting to keep it out of the way and letting your body do the thing. Mm-hmm. While you are rowing, what kind of things may pop up in your head apart from the actual body focusing on the task at hand, but what are those interactions with the mind? That are- yeah. I've never heard anyone call them interactions before, and they are 100% interactions. I say that there's like little man number one and little man number two. You have two people sitting on your shoulders and one is going, yes. And the other one wants to break in there and tell you no. And that's the conversation that you're having in your, in your head the whole time, you know, and mostly on the days when you're training and you definitely have these conversations. I speak to myself in the third person. I don't say, yes, I can, or yes, you can, or it's, I, shoop, you know, I say, yeah, shoop. <laughs> you know, I say my name to myself as if I'm coaching myself through this thing. And something that, again, like tracking, getting better at training logs, um, you get better at your, your mental game too, through the challenges that you've had. And it starts methodically at first where you take manageable chunks and then you eventually take bigger risks and bigger stretches over time as you gain confidence. You know, your teammates help you with that. Your coaches help you with that. You as your own third person, you know, help you with that. But something that I definitely learned to hone over time is that you need to pick, especially in the moment, in the race, the most simple conversation possible. Make it one syllable words, possibly make it two. It really depends on the rhythm of what you're doing. In rowing, it's kind of, you know, there's two words worked simply because of the rhythm, but you want to have as little space between what you're saying to yourself in your head as possible because in those spaces is where the other little guy trying to say no will take the opportunity to jump in there and drop a no. So for me, by the time the Olympics rolled around, it was just yes, more. That was it. Because, you know, you'll notice that yes and more as a combination is positive. It's forward thinking. It's I'm taking another step. Individually, yes and more are also positive. They're additive things. So I learned that because that's just the psychology of the brain. When you're under stress, if you break them apart, your, your body, your brain is only going to latch on to one word at a time, or it's not going to latch on to the contractions, things like that. So there was actually an incident where, and this taught me the most about this is an incident where I entered a race saying to myself, I'm going to say no fear. No fear is going to be my two. These are going to be my two words. This is the best thing ever. It's going to be so empowering. Yeah. I'm just so, yeah, I'm strong. Let's go do this. And that was my risk. I, that was the risk that I wanted to take was I'm going to find more. So no fear. And you can already hear the negative kind of tone in there. About 45 seconds into this race, this was a a race in Switzerland, a world cup in Switzerland that I entered thinking this and going down the race course, all of a sudden about 40, 45 seconds into the race, my brain broke the two words in half until all I thought was no fear, no fear. 
every stroke down the race course from there forward. But I had already convinced myself that was what I was going to think. So I had no choice in the moment, but to stay latched onto that. And by the time I crossed to the finish line, my, it felt like, oh my gosh, I, awful. It was awful. It was, we hadn't gone any faster necessarily, but I felt far worse because of what my brain thought the whole way down the race course. I never said no fear again for a race after that. <laughs> I realized the error of my ways. <laughs> so intriguing and trying to unearth these little things that go on in the athlete's mind that gives them an added push. And I, I totally agree because it is that one versus two that are trying to guide you and have a constant battle within themselves. And that's something that I read in a book called The yeah. of Tennis, where the author talks about self one and self two. The self one is the mind and self two is the body. And the he argues that self two already knows what it needs to do to achieve the task at hand. The whole challenge is to keep self one from interfering and giving too many instructions. Yeah. And that, that really is, you got to keep it simple. I always say like, to all the athletes that I get to work with is, is on race day, you go with what you got. You've practiced the motions, you've practiced the skills, you've practiced all those things so much. It's that one moment is not the time to question all of that. You have spent so much time preparing that the patterns are all there. And so on, on race day, your job is to distract your mind with the two positive words and let the body do what it spent all that time practicing on race day. You go with what you got. And I saw your medal ceremony when you, wouldn't stop crying and I can imagine I don't get to ask this often but what was going through your mind when the Olympic gold medal was being put around your neck because of where I sat in the boat and I get to write it I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna do a total spoiler for you because I, I tell a little bit about it in the, in the book as well but I was because of where I sat in the boat being the second smallest or the smallest person to row my side the second smallest in the, in the boat itself, I was the second to last person to get my medal. So I'd watched all of the, all my teammates ahead of me get their medals and I saw smiling and clapping and so excited for them. And all of a sudden the woman is standing right in front of me and it's my turn. And I was smiling and yeah, you know, and then she starts speaking to me. And when she started speaking and she, you know, puts the medal over my head because at the games, they give you the medal first that's a, an, an idiosyncrasy of the game specifically. They don't shake your hand, then give you the medal. It's the medal, then they shake your hand. Um, not sure why. This woman doesn't, isn't necessarily sure why either. Possibly a convention of giving you the medal as soon as possible. But as soon as she put it over my head, I wasn't expecting how heavy it was. And when it hit me and hung so much more largely than any of the other medals that we had gotten in the past, it struck me as, oh, this is different that's how different the, this is. It was shocking. You know, I had put myself into pain to race before that I was used to, but the ceremony was so strikingly different that I, I couldn't have prepared for that. And so when she was shaking my hand and speaking to me, she told me that my life was forever changed. You know, and of course I couldn't understand in the moment what that meant either, because it's different for everyone. It's still developing. It's still adapting. It's still evolving. But I started bawling when she started shaking my hand. She, the woman that gave us our medals is, you know, a pioneer in women's Olympic rowing. And she's the type of person, the best way I can describe this is if you were to watch her walk across a room, it would almost seem like she's floating. She's like this ethereal presence that you just have a reverence for and a respect 
you know, it's just inborn to her. She's soft-spoken, you know, just a really incredible person. And so for someone like that to tell you that your life has changed and to consider you a superhero, you know, to have done this amazing thing just makes you go, wow, does she know who she is? Like, the, and she thinks this of me. And that alone is awe-inspiring and interesting. You know, I, I just, yeah, I mean, the other piece of it is that rowing was one of the three sports in that Olympic year to have the medal ceremony happen immediate relative to the final itself. So we didn't get to go home and take a nap, take a shower. We're standing there still sweating. And so the emotion was completely raw. <laughs> no time to go, oh, let me hear, what's my acceptance speech? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I think having gone through that and then not letting that win obviously allow you know getting you in the mindset of resting on your laurels you went and had another gold medal at the world championships in 2009 what does mm-hmm. it take to mm-hmm. constantly motivate yourself in spite of achieving the success that you did yeah you know that's an interesting thing because that's a, that's book number two. I just haven't gotten to it yet because the first one ends after the games, but it was really a strange experience because that again is something that you cannot expect. When we crossed the finish line in 2009, we won again and we weren't as fit. The boat was not nearly as stable. It wasn't nearly as cohesive as it was the previous year. And so when we crossed the line, I just remember being more wiped than ever. I, you know, I didn't even have the energy to muster to cheer for this thing. And it was not what I, the same as what I had expected. It wasn't even, you know, additive as I had expected as it, as it had been in the past. It was almost like, whoa, that was weird. That wasn't as interesting as I thought it was going to be. And that's a strange thing to say. I mean, you just won the world championships and that is the beauty of, of the book that I have yet to write. And so um, the, the fact of wrapping my head around what your other outlets are for expressing your best version of you and rowing, you know, you have a finite amount of time and it was that I didn't need rowing anymore. I didn't, it, rowing itself was a thing that was teaching me that really what I was enjoying was becoming better and growing and being healthy and happy. And so to come to that point of going back again was because it, that was the thing that had, had shown me how to get better every day. And then having that psychological change, you know, made me go, okay, now what can I do? What allows me to get better every day? And so, you know, ultimately I ended up retiring in 20, 2010. And I, re- I remember sitting down with my coaches on the very day that I retired and it was something isn't right. This isn't the right thing for me anymore. You know, and there was more to it. I was overtraining at the time, honestly. So the, a lot of the things that, that has informed the way that I coach and the way that I behave to this day is, you know, you've asked about sustainability and the recovery piece is, and, and as you get older, it becomes even more critical. And you have to really look at, and this is where tracking comes in again, you have to really look at what is essential to allowing you to excel as you grow and change. And the older we get, you need to prioritize recovery. Take you, you ha- And there's obviously a finite amount of time in a given day. So you have to go, okay, 
what can I reduce in order to prioritize this? Because this is more important now than ever. It's always been important, but I need to dedicate even more time to it now. And, and that is a huge piece of, of the longevity factor. And that I, I preach all day long with people that I get to work with at all levels. Yeah. Well, it's been a real, real pleasure having you at the podcast today and learning the really interesting traits that make an athlete an elite athlete and allow them to have a sustained period of success. And I definitely learned a lot from this conversation. I'm really looking forward to reading the book even more. So thank you once again for taking out the time today and sharing your story with us, Lindsay. Of course. And maybe next time we can delve more into next book, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> the, the what happens next? <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, with only a select group of 10 to 12,000 athletes making it to the Olympics every four years, the odds of becoming an Olympian are 0.0001%. And the odds of becoming an Olympic champion, 0.0000013%. Those are the odds with which athletes like Lindsay and Neera Chopra work with for four hard years. So it's only understandable the accolades and appreciation they receive once they have achieved the feat of becoming an Olympic champion. I also appreciate Lindsay's very honest and candid recollection of her time on the top of the podium. With that, let's quickly take a look at some of the athletes who made it to the top of the podium in Tokyo and also some of the ones who narrowly missed out on the same. Bajrang won his bronze medal match convincingly as he ran out 8-0 winner against his opponent from Kazakhstan. This, combined with Ravi Kumar's silver, makes it two medals from wrestling for India in Tokyo Olympics and continues India's streak of winning a wrestling medal at every Olympics since Beijing 2008. Aditya Ashok, the Indian golfer, was in the second position going into the final rounds of the women's golf. She ended the round with a score of under three, and that saw her lose her medal position by a single shot. While she'd obviously be disappointed, she can take pride in the fact that she made golf more popular in the country. With that, it's a wrap for another episode of the Gifted Podcast Olympic Special Series. All the medals have been handed out in Tokyo, and the closing ceremony has taken place as we bid adieu to the grandest stage of sport for another three years. Join me one last time as part of the Olympic special series in the next video as we look at some of the big winners from Tokyo. Until next time, I'm your host Neeraj Mulani signing off.